2 Corinthians chapter 1, picking up in verse 12, reading through 24. This is what the Word of God has to say. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of the Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this. I wanted, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and to have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I, I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanius and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from com um, coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. So at the heart of this passage, Paul is dealing with an accusation. Somebody, the, the, the accusation is that Paul, before he had left Corinth, had promised, I'm going to come again. And he had not done it. And so the accusation is, Paul, you knew you weren't coming from the very beginning, and you lied. You're a liar, Paul. And so he's giving his defense about the circumstances that have kept him from coming, and he's basically making an appeal that ultimately his life is at the dependency of Jesus and that his conscience is clear before God on whether or not he intended to come. Now, here's the reality of this world. The most vicious accusers are the ones who will attack your heart's motives and your intentions. Now, such accusations are clearly prohibited in Scripture. So let's be very clear. Sometimes you'll hear people say, don't judge. And you'll talk about it in the church, we ought not to judge. Hear me carefully. You and I ought to be judging the things that we can see. So if you see me stealing a car this week, you have full biblical permission to come up and judge me and say, Pastor, that's not right. Return it right now. Are we in agreement with that? Somebody say amen. I'm going to steal your car then. Somebody say amen. All right. If we see it with our eyes, we can observe it and know it, then absolutely, within the context of faith, particularly those of us who are in the church together, we ought to be judging one another for the sake of God, for the sake of our own righteousness, and for the testimony of the church and our own walk with the Lord. If you see a brother or sister in sin, call it out to them so that they may know. But here's where we cannot judge. We cannot judge those things that we cannot see. And so if things are coming out of your mouth that sound like this, I know what you meant. 
I know what you were thinking. Then that is, you, when you say those things, you are standing in the place of God. Only God knows your heart. Only God knows what's really going on between your ears and your mind. And so you and I are restricted from judging those things that we cannot see and cannot know. I cannot know your heart. I can know your actions, but I cannot know your heart. And so therefore we are restricted from judging the, the conscience, the heart, the intention of another brother or a sister. And that's what's happening in this passage. They're judging the intention of Paul. They're saying, you told us you were coming back and you never intended to do that. You lied to us. And Paul is saying, absolutely not. That's why I say that the most vicious accusers are the ones who attack your heart's motives because when somebody attacks your heart's motives, it's almost impossible to defend against that. What do you say when somebody says, you meant to do that? Now, the only defense you have is, nuh-uh. But the nuh-uh doesn't seem to be an adequate response. It doesn't seem to be an adequate, adequate uh, defense against that. To be totally honest, I, I did not realize how prevalent this would be in ministry uh, when I entered the ministry. And frankly, I was a bit unprepared for these type of attacks. My, my very first church uh, that I pastored out of seminary, I came out of my office one Sunday morning and I rounded the corner and my organist and my pianist were standing there in the hallway and I said, good morning, and I walked on my way. Sounds about right, about normal. Uh, the next day I get this call and the call says, pastor, the organist is angry with you and they're leaving the church. And I said, what did I do? Well, you didn't speak to her. And I said, well, I, I, are, you, are you talking about when I came around the corner and I said, good morning? They said, yes, you only spoke to the pianist. You didn't speak to the organist. And I said, yes, I did. And they said, no, you didn't. And they say you meant to be mean to her. Now, I want, listen, this is not good pastoral ministry. I'm like, this is, do not follow this if God calls you into ministry. In my mind, I said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And I'm not going to respond to stupidity like that. That's ridiculous. We're grown-ups in the here. We're not behaving like children. But do you know what? That family left the church over that. Because they accused my intentions, my heart, of intending not to speak to her. And there was absolutely nothing I could say that would defend the point. Because they had judged my heart and it, they were willing to stand it. Now, I want to be honest. When those kind of things come... Those are, those, those are a conflict looking for something to accuse. So if it hadn't been that, it would have been something else. But what I did learn through that experience is you can't ignore that silliness. That silliness happens. It continues. There's a struggle within us where in the church we'll oftentimes accuse one another of, of intentions and, 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 and things of the heart that we cannot know. And to ignore them allows those things to fester. We need to actually confront them and deal with them. And Paul is confronting and dealing with that kind of silliness right here in this letter. He's dealing with the accusers who are accusing him of being deceitful and manipulative because he has not been able to return to the church as he had promised. And he wants, and he wanted to, and they wanted ultimately to discredit his ministry. And he's making his defense. Now, his defense has three parts. And I think it's, it's helpful for us. As you're preaching through books, sometimes the, 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 the points of a sermon don't necessarily all seem to have cohesion, but so, we, we just kind of accept that as we preach through passages like this. But these are the three parts of Paul's defense. Number one, he is of clear conscience before the Lord. That's the main point today. The difference, it doesn't really matter what anybody else says about you. You have a clear conscience before God. Let the whole world accuse you, but you be clear, clear conscience before the living God who does know your heart. Secondly, 
Trust in Christ alone. Trust in Christ alone for your timing. Trust in Christ alone for where you go tomorrow. Trust in Christ alone for everything about your life. He is in control of your days, your life, and everything about it. And then lastly, trust in God's timing. We're going to see in this passage that, that Paul is saying, listen, it's actually God's grace that he prevented me from coming to you. And he says, I'm trusting in God's timing even more than me. But let's begin with the main point of the passage, and that is be of clear conscience. In fact, Paul says that almost at the very beginning of, our, of the passage that we read. So turn your Bibles back and, and look, verse in verse, look back in verse 12. Paul says, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in this world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God we sur- and supremely so towards you. In other words, our hearts are clear. Our hearts, our, our conscience is clear in the way that we have behaved towards you, dear church there at Corinthians. Now, a couple of things about this. Number one, dear friends, as you interact with one another, have a pure heart. Guard the intentions, guard the reality of your heart. The accusation had been made against Paul that because he had promised to return to Corinth but had not been able to, that he had lied to the church and should not be trusted. Paul's defense is not to argue against his accusers but to make a case that before the Lord his conscience is clear. In verse 12, he speaks of holiness and godly sincerity, simplicity or holiness. Those two words are interchangeable depending on which way your your, your Bible translates that. His defense is not a direct rebuttal of the facts. The facts are he wasn't able to come. So he's not trying to argue the facts, but he's giving a testimony of his heart. And he's saying that before the Lord, he acted in holiness and godly sincerity. His conscience was clear before God. Friends, listen to me carefully. Accusers will look for any reason to accuse. Real or not. Accusers who desire only to condemn make judgments against your heart. They cannot know or judge your heart. And so they'll say stuff like, I know what you mean. I know what you were feeling. I know what you intended And friends, the reality of it is, this side of heaven, as long as we live in a broken world, there will always be accusers. In fact, friends, I think as we look going forward, the accusers are going to increase exponentially. You're standing on the Word of God, preaching the Word of God, living out the Word of God. All the accusations are coming that you're a hater of people, that you're a bigot. That that, that you're unkind, that you're unloving, that you're unjudgmental. And there'll be a part of you that wants to say, no, I'm not. In fact, you're going to want to say, nuh-uh. They're not going to receive it. You're going to say, yes, you are. And I'm telling you, friends, you cannot satisfy the accuser. Don't worry about the accuser. Make sure your heart is right before the living God. For each of you, you must act and minister not in fear of the accuser's but in fear of the living God. So act, obey, minister with a clear conscience. Have a pure heart and have pure motives. Paul goes on to say that toward the the church he has acted in the grace of God and he's making the case that his motives are not as his accusers have claimed. They were saying about Paul, you're trying to manipulate, you're you're, you're dubious, you're, you're, you're corrupt, you've not been straightforward with us. Brother, he's declaring that he's acted according to God's grace in their best interest, desiring God to be glorified and working for the kingdom of God. 
The truth is no man can know another person's heart. But as we minister and work amongst one another, we must do so with a kingdom perspective and according to the grace of God. So often we talk, we say this phrase, it's a heart issue. But we talk about it's a heart issue. And so you want to have a clear conscience before God, but you want to have pure motives as well. That, that what motivates you, what's driving you is not for a personal gain, but what's driving you is for the kingdom advancement. So what was driving you is not something that is selfish uh, at its heart, but it, what is good and gracious and a blessing for others. Have a pure heart, have pure motives, and be confident in the Lord's judgment. No one can know the heart of another, but every heart is known by the Lord. Now, if you understand the weight of that statement, that ought to make you shake a little bit. Because you might be able to fool other people. But you cannot fool the living God. Paul's confidence is not in his defense. Paul's confidence is in the judgment of God. One thing I have discovered about the the kind of folks that will bring accusations against your heart about your intentions is even if you bring a sufficient, well-reasoned defense about why they're wrong, as soon as you um, rebut one issue, they've got another one right behind it. Have you noticed that? And if you rebut that one, they've got another one right behind it. The point is they're not looking for, they're not looking to resolve the issue, they're really just looking to accuse, and so the, the list of accusations are forever and unending. That's why Paul's not concerned with, the, the, uh, with, with, uh, with the defend, defending against his accusers. He is only concerned in the judgment of God. In verse 14, he writes it this way. Just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us and we will boast of you. In other words, when the Lord comes and reveals all things, then we will know the truth. He has confidence in that. There will be some who criticize you who are motivated by a desire to bless the work of ministry. Now, this is the positive. They will criticize you in order to build up the ministry. They will criticize you to protect the testimony of the gospel. And even on the issue of your heart, I've had people in my life say, Pastor, I'm I'm a concern. It seems like there's some issues of pride here, or there there seems like there may be a motivation here that's uh, that's maybe not not pure. But, But... Listen, you don't have to tell me if your, if your intentions is to accuse, to tear down, or, or, or to bring a criticism to build up. You can usually tell that pretty quick, can't you? You know how people say, no, don't you know I love you? That's usually a, a precursor of something that's unpleasant. If you love me, I'll know it without you having to say it. There will be some who will criticize but have, are motivated by desire to bless the ministry. So to build up, to protect the testimony of the gospel, to warn against sin. These are those who are motivated by advancing the kingdom, blessing the criticized, and effectiveness of ministry. And these will resonate with one who has a clear conscience and motives. In other words, you'll recognize that their desire for you is for your blessing and your good. We ought to be speaking in each other's lives. We ought to be speaking into each other's lives. To refuse to do so is not kind and is not loving. 
Be confident in the Lord's judgment. Even as you speak into others' lives, there will be some who will criticize that are motivated by blessing, and there will be some who will criticize, who, who will accuse with the desire to tear down and destroy. Such people are, are motivated by destruction, by discrediting. Uh, their will is to, uh, they, will, they will move on to other accusations when the original accusation is addressed. And here's the reality, friends. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what your dear brother who loves you says, nor does it matter what your enemy accuses you of. Both of them can get it wrong. The only thing that matters is what does God say about you. We oftentimes think about how terrible it is when we're falsely accused by one who hates us. But here I think even the greater damage, the greater danger is for everybody to say to us that we're great and wonderful when in reality our motives, our heart is wicked. Be of clear conscience before the Lord. He knows your heart. He knows your motives. Be of clear conscience. Secondly, trust in Christ alone. Now, Paul then moves, after he says, I have a clear conscience, he then moves to the details of what's been going on. And he says in verse 15, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first. In other words, that was my desire. I desired to come to you first. And in fact, he gives some, some details here so, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back from Macedonia and to, and to have you uh, send me on my way to Judea. I was, uh, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh ready to say yes, yes, and no, no? In other words, he's saying that was my desire. My intention was to come again. And he says, what, was I telling you that even while I was intending not to go? And he says, absolutely not. The, the intention of me was to come. But here's the reality. We must trust in Christ alone because only Christ knows, only Jesus knows what tomorrow will bring. Keep reading the passage with me. He says in verse 19, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who we proclaim among you, Sylvanius and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. Now, total honesty, sometimes the syntax of Paul gets a little convoluted. So he's talking about yes and yes and no and no and yes and no. And in Jesus it is always yes. Here's what he's trying to say. I can tell you that I intend to do something tomorrow, but I cannot guarantee it's going to happen. But when Jesus declares something will happen, it always comes to be. So a couple of things here, talking about trusting in Christ. First of all, the plans of men are never sure. It was true that Paul had intended to come again to the church, but had not been able to do so. But James tells us to preference what we say we'll do with if the Lord wills. In James chapter 4, it says, Come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go in such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Friends, you and I don't have any more control over the next minute than we do have the next day or the next year. That's what Paul is saying. He says, listen, I, I intended, my intention, my plans were to come. But Jesus had other plans for me. 
You and I, we do not control the weather. We cannot even, we can't control the weather and we cannot control the, the schedule of our days. Therefore, we must reckon with the truth that though we might desire something and fully intend to do something, our plans are never sure. Our yes is not always yes. And our no is not always no. This is not to say that Paul was not honest with his intentions. This is to say that Paul was not in control of how things would work out. Do you hear me? This is not to say that Paul was not being honest when he said, I wanted to come. It is to say that Paul was not in control of how those things would work out. Our hope cannot be and should not be in the power or promise of man. Friends, listen to me. If you have set your hope on the promises of other people, you will be disappointed. It doesn't matter how impressive they are or powerful they are. If you put your hope in the promises of man, you will be disappointed. Our hope must be in the power of God. This is why Paul says the will of God is always true. He says in Jesus, he is always yes. Where Paul intended to come but could not, um, could not demonstrate his weakness. But God is always able and faithful to fulfill his word. When Jesus says yes, it is always yes. Amen? In verse 20 it says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him we utter our amen to God to his, for his glory. Our assurance. Our, our faithfulness, our, 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 our surety is found in the promises of Jesus alone. No man can ensure that his promises are true, but God can and does. And in him, his promises are always yes. I've learned over the years when my kids ask me to, to make a promise, hey, Dad, will you do such and such tomorrow? And folks, those of you who have young children, listen to me carefully. Don't ever say yes. Always say, well, we'll try. <laughs> Maybe. Always put a little ambiguity in there because, you, first of all, you don't know what tomorrow is hold. And the other thing is you'll probably forget. They will not, but you will probably forget. And then they will come up to you and they'll say, Dad, but you said. You said you were going to do such and such. Now, was I lying to them when I said it? No, I, I probably intended it when I did, but I've moved on. I've thought about other things. And so it's wise to say, we'll try, I'll try, maybe, or something like that, in part because you cannot promise tomorrow. But in God, his promises are always yes. Even as Paul is defending his inability to come, he is pointing to a sure thing. It is not in man that we trust, but in God. And in God, our trust is never disappointed. Now, this is why this goes together. Paul says, you're, you're accusing me of not being able to control my, uh, being uh, unfaithful or uh, uh, deceptive with what I plan to do, but you're missing the point. You're putting your faith and trust in me. And where your faith and trust ought to be is in the God of all, uh, 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 the God of all things, the one who controls everything, the one who is and, and was and is to come. Don't put your promises in my word. Put your, promise, your trust in the promises of Jesus. I say yes, but can't make it happen. Jesus says yes and can make it be every time, always. Trust in Christ alone. And then lastly, trust in God's timing. God's timing is perfect. Look at the, the last of the passage. Verse 23. But I call God to witness against me. 
It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Oh, what is he saying? Paul is saying, not only did God prevent me from coming, but Paul is saying, it was his intention, his providential grace that I was not able to come. And he's calling the Corinthian church, not only should you understand that my conscience is clear, not only should you trust in Christ alone, not in men, but you should rejoice in God's providential timing in all things. God's timing is perfect. And he points to a point of grace in his inability to come to the church. If he had come, which he intended to do, his visit would not have been pleasant. In fact, he would have come with words of discipline. In other words, Paul was saying, listen, I was coming and I, had a, I, had my, my, I was loaded for bear. There were some issues of sin in the church and I was coming to deal with it. And it was not going to be a pleasant visit. It was going to be a difficult visit. I think, just from a pastor's point of view, I think there's an element of thanksgiving here. That Paul realizes that in his delay in coming, God had dealt with the people. Apparently, the issue of sin had been resolved. There had been repentance and restoration. And Paul realizes, now that I come, I don't have to deal with that issue directly. I think there's a level of thanksgivingness. I think he's appreciative of the fact that in God's providence, he withheld him coming so that God could deal with it directly so that when Paul did come, it wasn't going to have to be such a difficult conversation. He sees God's. He see how God had pro- prohibited him from coming as a work of God to give the Corinthians opportunity to resolve and repent of the issues that Paul was going to have to address. I don't think it's that Paul was unwilling, but he wasn't desiring to speak such harsh words to them. Here's what I do know. This is what I think Paul is saying here, that God's timing is perfect, even when it is against what we wanted or wished to do. God's timing is perfect, and God's work is perfect. The accusers were attempting to discredit Paul's ministry over the silliness of his travel schedule. We're 2,000 years removed from Paul. And even today, with all the technology that we have, I can't guarantee that if you have tickets to fly from here to California and back, you're going to make it on the plane schedule. This past summer, we were coming back from California and We intended to go to Atlanta. You know where we ended up? New York City. (laughs) Spent a night in New York and then came home because of weather and everything else. Did we intend to do that? Absolutely not. That's the way the travel worked out. That's what happened to us. And all the modern technology with weather satellites and everything else, you can't guarantee travel even today. And much less in the first century in Paul's day. The accusers were attempting to discredit Paul's ministry over the silliness of his travel schedule. But Paul recognized that even in his travel schedule, God was working. Oh, listen to me, friends. Have a clear conscience before the Lord. That's where you start. Trust in Christ alone. And then recognize that in all things, God's timing is perfect. Now, here's where it gets a little close to the heart. When you intended to be in Atlanta and you're stuck in New York City, trusting that God's timing is perfect. When you you had a short time to get across town and every train in Waycross is across the tracks, mm -hmm, trusting God's timing. When I go to Walmart, they got 800 lines and only one of them's working. 
And I'm 15 people back in line with one item. Trust in God's timing. God was working in the Corinthian church to restore the church at Corinth to righteousness, even beyond and without Paul's visit. He was working to bless the relationship of this pastor with his church. In everything, God was working, and Paul saw it. The accusers wanted to discredit Paul's ministry, and Paul is saying, oh, you don't, you've missed the point. My, my conscience is clear before God, but, but dear friends, look, God's doing something here. He's doing something, and in, in even all the logistics of my travel not being able to come about as I had intended or planned. Accusations of wrongdoing are never pleasant. We're pretty prickly these days about them. Our culture is, has become very, very averse to anything being negative said about anything. We tend to shut it down pretty quickly. It's not to our advantage. It's not to our health unto that end. I'm reminded of two accusations that Dietrich Bonhoeffer received. Now, if you don't recognize that name, he was a pastor, a theologian, during the days of the Second World War in Germany. And because of his prominence, he was able to leave Germany as Nazi uh, Germany took over, as the Nazi government took over. He was able to leave Germany and, and, uh, and, and, and both spend some time in, in, uh, in the United States and in England and, would, and could have spent the entirety of the war in total safety. He, would have, he was a celebrated theologian. He had, had done some writing and was well-respected. But he got a letter from a colleague. I want to read the letter to you. It's pretty brutal. Listen to what he wrote. He says, what is all this about going away and quietness of pastoral work, etc., at a moment when you are wanted in Germany? You who know as well as I do that the opposition in Berlin and the opposition of the church in Germany as a whole stands inwardly on such weak why aren't you always there where, you, where so much could, be, could depend on, on there being a, a couple of game people on the watch at every occasion, great or small, and trying to save what there is to be saved? I think that I can see from your letter that you, like all of us, yes, all of us, are suffering under the quiet, common difficulty of taking certain steps in the present chaos. But should it not dawn on you that there is no reason for withdrawing from this chaos? That we are rather required in and with our uncertainty, even if we should stumble or go wrong ten times or a hundred times to do our bit? One simply cannot be, become weary now. Still less can one go to England. What is all the world, what in all the world would you want to do there? You must now leave, go now leave, go all these intellectual flourishes and special considerations, however interesting they may be, and think of only one thing, that you are a German, that the house of your church is on fire, that you know enough to be able to help, and that you must return to your post by the next ship. That's an, that's an accusing letter, isn't it? 
Bonhoeffer's friend was saying, brother, you're not where you ought to be. You ought to be back in Germany, pastoring the church, proclaiming the gospel, even at great peril. He says, because you're a German and your church is on fire. What in the world are you doing in England? Now that, my friends, was an accusation, a challenge from a friend who cared both for the kingdom of God, the righteousness of Jesus, and his friend, Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer heeded that, that counsel and that chastisement. He went back to Germany. He would pastor there throughout the war and would become a hated person uh, uniquely to Hitler himself. He would be arrested, held in prison through the end of the war, and as as the Allies were pressing in and it was clear that Germany was about to fall, Hitler sent special instructions. In the very last days of the war, they, they pulled Bonhoeffer out of jail. They had a show trial for him, accused him of all sorts of, of uh, crimes and misdemeanors, had a show trial, and then executed him literally hours before his prison was released. Now, this is what I'm pretty confident of. I'm pretty confident that the accusation of his friend through that letter was more stinging than all the crimes he was accused of by the show trial. Because I'm pretty confident that Bonhoeffer understood that the only judgment that really mattered was not the judgment of the Nazi government and not even the judgment of his friend, but the judgment of the living God. And that he wanted to be where God wanted him to be. He heeded the counsel of his friend, went back to Germany to the cost of his very life. And I think he faced the, 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 uh, the, the, the firing squad of the Nazi government with confidence that as he was accused, convicted, and executed on account of their crimes, he stood before the living God with a clear conscience. Be clear conscienced. Trust ultimately in Christ and rest in His perfect time. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.